Guildsum has received the generous support of the Spire Collection, including Capensis, who honors the greatness of South Africa's Western Cape through the noble white variety Chardonnay. For more information on our online community of wine professionals, visit us on the web at guildsum.com. Hi, everyone. This is Guildsum staff writer Bryce Weitrack. I have the immense pleasure today of speaking with master of wine Jasper Morris, author of Inside Burgundy, and really one of the world's foremost experts on this topic for quite some time now. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Jasper. Well, thank you, uh, Bryce. Thank you, Guildsum, for inviting me. I think just to begin, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into wine and, and how did you get into Burgundy? Okay, well, the short answer to getting into wine is I didn't want to be a lawyer, which is what my family have always done, and I didn't think I'd be good at it. And I got involved in blind wine tasting events uh, in my student days and developed it from there. Why Burgundy? Well, fairly early on, I started my own importing company with the intention just of doing French wines to begin with. We did spread out later. And over that first year, which was 1981, I spent time going round the various different parts of France. And Burgundy was the one where I came away with a different experience. That's to say that if I was in the Loire or the Rhone or many other parts, it was uh, just a question of the producer putting the wines in front of me and did I like them fine? Did I want to buy them fine? But it was fairly straightforward. Of course, it was great when the wines were good. Um, Bordeaux is much more a question of, uh, okay, what business might you want to do with us before we even started to talk about the wine? And in any case, I didn't have the funds to do much in Bordeaux, and it was so well handled in the UK. There was nothing really for me there. But Burgundy was different. Um, I was lucky enough to meet some really great people. I was introduced to them by Becky Wasserman, who uh, many of your members will know of well and is such an extraordinary person in the history of Burgundy over the last 40-odd years. And she introduced me to Dominique Lafont, and my first two tastings were with uh, Domaine de Comte Lafont and, uh, and Jean-Francois Costurie. I was just brought in to meet people at a completely different level. It wasn't just their wines were better, but they were so passionate in talking about uh, what they were making and what the different vineyards tasted like, all those things. And it was done just completely naturally, person to person. Uh, no feeling of whether or not there might be uh, anything commercial at the end of it. Similarly for me, Becky is one of my, my favorite people in the wine industry. Actually, just last night, in celebration of, of Beaujolais Nouveau Day, I was out at a, a wine bar and I had a bottle of one of her Beaujolais producers. Not not Nouveau, but but delicious stuff nonetheless. So you, you spent a good chunk of, of your career at Barry Brothers and Rudd, which is obviously one of the most illustrious wine merchants worldwide. What what can you tell me about that experience? And do they operate differently from other retailers? And and what are kind of some things that are, are idiosyncratic about working there? Okay, well, to put that in perspective, um, I started my own business back in 1981, and suddenly I got a phone call out of the blue in 2003 from Berry Brothers saying, we'd like to buy your business. And it was a time that, you know, we've been going for 20 odd years, the business had built, increased turnover every year, but profitability wasn't so easy. And also, I had no real training in running a business, and I was getting further and further away from being able to spend time in the vineyards with the producers. So that happened at the right time, and they needed uh, a better Burgundy connection, and they needed um, my sort of sales into the restaurant business, whereas they were much more private customers. So there's a very nice fit there. After a while, Berries being a much bigger company, they had different buyers for different regions, so I handed over all those other areas, just stuck with Burgundy, and became their 
I was their buying director briefly, but really I became their Burgundy ambassador and uh, did all things Burgundian. So Berries has been around for a few hundred years. Um, 1698 is the official start date, which had one big advantage from the personal point of view is that the members of the Berry and the Rudd family over the years had uh, put away plenty of good wines into the sort of the private family cellar, which one could draw on if need be for inviting customers or producers to lunch or for particular tastings. So I did get to choose some incredible wines from quite a long way back. But Berry's also had the old-fashioned attitude of, of saying that we really want to do uh, the best wine job well. And after that, let's hope we're competent enough to make money out of it, rather than uh, you know, a drive to do everything with the profit motive. So that was very reassuring and, uh, and suits my temperament as well. You were working on the second edition of your you know, tome inside Burgundy. With such a historical cachet to this region, we kind of think of it as almost a static place. But obviously, you know, it, it's a dynamic, active wine region. What are, what are the major developments that have happened between the publication of your first edition and you know, what you're looking to have in your second? Just in terms of the book, then there are one or two things which I've developed in any case. I think uh, a couple of people said that I wasn't quite involved enough with Chablis, and so there's a lot more on that. And I've added Beaujolais and uh, a number of other individual topics I've gone into in more detail. But over the last 10 years, what's changed is uh, a little bit global warming, a little bit an arrival of a new generation. It's always hard to talk about a new generation because, of course, with several thousand um, domains producing wine, clearly there are lots of new people coming in, taking over from their parents every year. But sometimes you get a feel for a particular generation. Then there has there have been a few technical challenges as well. And there's been the continuation of the sort of global love affair with Burgundy and how producers react to that when uh, things are selling out too quickly. And there's a speculative element that comes in, which isn't to everybody's taste. So when we talk about global warming, you know, obviously that is a major existential threat, you know, for the entire wine world. But especially when we think about you know, grapes as sensitive as Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. What does it really mean for Burgundy? Well, Chardonnay doesn't care much. You can make great Chardonnay at sort of 11.5% uh, alcohol, and you can make great Chardonnay at 15-plus uh, uh, alcohol. It really is a, a, a style of wine, that, or rather a grape, that produces so many different styles of wine. Sure, I think uh, classic white Burgundy will change with hotter temperatures, but it's not existentially threatened. Pinot is another matter because that's a grape that's uh, afraid of sunburn. For my own taste, I like it best at 12 and a half, 13, maybe 13 and a half. And we're having to live with 13 and a half being almost the lower end, perhaps 13, and uh, it going over 14 and occasionally quite a long way over. And it isn't just the sugar readings. Also, the global warming, uh, which I think we can say that 2018 is the turning point. Yes, already uh, temperatures were uh, higher over the previous 20 years than they had been before then. And occasionally we'd have exceptionally warm vintages, but there were exceptions. 2018 said, look, this is the new norm. And 2019 and 2020 have followed a little bit in the same way. So it's not just hot, but it's also drier during the summer months. The complication is that we're getting grapes, which are getting in one sense too ripe, now, that may not just be sugar levels, but that can also be the flavor profile of overripe cooked grapes. Uh, when the skins start to wrinkle, for example, if you're looking at the grapes physically in the vineyard, 
And yet, because it's very dry and because the season is very early and it hasn't had its 100 days since the flowering, you're not getting physiological ripeness. Indeed, you quite often get the vine shutting down physiologically. So you can get these overcooked flavors with exceptionally unripe tannins. And that's ugly, however you look at it. Now, I'm not saying that this has become the standard, but there are instances of it which show that it's a threat and means that people have got to start looking at other ways to get round it, which can be in the viticulture, uh, amongst other things. Some things you can do, if you're replanting, for example, you're going to look to have, if you're going to use clones, you'll look for later ripening clones. Certainly in terms of your um, rootstock, you're going to look for later ripening rootstocks. You may want to vary your planting density. You may want to vary your canopy, something I'm still trying to get my head around, because in general, more foliage, more leaves in your canopy could mean more photosynthesis, so more sugar more quickly. But on the other hand, it can also provide some shade. There's a lot going on there, and people are beginning to raise the canopies, make them higher, but uh, we're still finding out what's the right way to go there. You know, when we think about Grand Cru vineyards, you know, it's this very kind of narrow tenderloin that historically has been able to produce ripe wines every single vintage. And with that being less of a challenge today, what is the kind of merit of the term Grand Cru to you in, in 2020? Okay, well, I don't think many of the uh, Grand Crus have fallen out of favor. One or two are a little bit more doubtful now. And some of the other vineyards, which are a little bit less well thought of before, have clearly grown in stature. And with the warming, two things have happened. The first thing was that as overall ambient temperatures got a bit warmer, then quality started to move up the slope. So you'd have some vineyards which might have been too cool in the 1930s when they made the choices, might have been too cool for top status, which suddenly look really good. And then the second thing is with these recent three more or less uh, drought years, it's beginning to look more interesting at the bottom of the slope, where you typically had uh, humid, deep, humid soils, which because there was a lot of water in the soil, that water would be pumped into the canopy, into the leaves. And if the vine is concentrating on its leaves more than its grapes, then it leaves unripe tannins. And so you get you typically in Pommard, in Alox-Corton, parts of Chevrolet Chambertin, Clos-Vougeot in the bottom part, you would get these somewhat rustic, aggressive tannins. And that's all disappearing. So those appellations are becoming more interesting with global warming because the humidity uh, in the soil uh, has been significantly diminished, but there's still enough water there uh, for them not to suffer from drought. We are beginning to see a slightly different hierarchy, slightly different profile of, of what's doing really well. Has kind of the reality of the, these new great terroirs caught up to the pricing of, of these areas of Burgundy yet? Or can you still find value in you know, these kind of upper slope regions? Well, all Burgundy is pretty expensive. Uh, and I suppose it's the market that decides if it's too expensive. We still get a number of wines which have, are developing secondary market prices enormously higher than uh, whatever the grower originally sold it for. But equally, we are anecdotally, we're hearing about pushback. We're hearing about people who don't want to pay the current prices in Burgundy. And I think that's understandable. And in fact, many of the producers do understand it. But then at the same time, there are a lot more people coming into the marketplace. The point of your question was more, uh, is the value to be had in some of the areas which were less highly priced before? Or is that already being uh, priced into the wine? Uh, actually, I think the value is still there. I don't think people have really changed the hierarchy of their pricing all that much. 
Okay, the top wines have stretched out further from the pack. But something which remains broadly true in Burgundy is that people continue to price their wines according to their official classification, which is a bit nuts, really, because you've got a basic Bourgogne that's right next door to a village vineyard. And actually, you can see that the soil is just as good and there is a significant discrepancy in pricing. And if tomorrow they changed, let's say, the Bourgogne Rouge Bon Baton vineyard into Chambon Musigny, the growers would suddenly price it at Chambon Musigny and it'd be exactly the same wine as before. So there are a few sort of old fashioned things like that uh, in Burgundy pricing. I don't think we are seeing a big uptick in pricing from the villages like Osegeras and Montelier, uh, which are sort of tucked away a bit round the back, Savigny Les Bones. Maybe Saint Aubin you could point to as an area which has, because its reputation has grown so much, where its white wines, you can see a bit of a price increment. But even so, a Saint Aubin Premier Cru typically is sold by a producer at a lower price than their village Chassin Maraschet. And I know which I'd rather have. So, I mean, with Burgundy prices, I mean, it's getting truly astronomical with, you know, a number of Grand Crus obviously reaching four digits, I mean, even five digits in price. Do you think we're going to... But you are, you are talking secondary market there, it's important to say. Of course. Not it's not the producers themselves who are dictating that in many instances. You can find exceptions where, where they are doing it. But in most instances, it is either you see headline prices which are enormously high simply because there are a couple of cases kicking around which you can pick up on one of the sort of price comparative sites or because intermediaries are saying we know that some people will pay this much so we'll take the difference but it's mostly not the producers of course all, all the same though you know to to consumers you know that's uh, the point of access for for many of them to these great wines of the world do you, do you think we'll observe something similar to the pricing bubble that we did in, in Bordeaux and, you know, within the last several years, see a waning interest from certain segments of the market? Or do you think this is a sustainable kind of trajectory for, for Burgundy for the foreseeable future? Well, weirdly enough, I feel both those things. There should be an element of, of bubble. Things should fall back. There are clearly some long-term Burgundy consumers who have decided that they don't want to play anymore. Uh, and I think that's entirely understandable. But there are plenty more who have the funds, who really want to have these wines, and there's so little produced of any individual wine. Where I think we'll see a falling back, where wines are priced high because they are Premier Cruz and Grand Cruz, but they're not the fashionable ones that people want. They're the sort of second division of each of those categories. If demand does weaken, it's going to be in those places first. I mean, I won't name the name, but I was with a producer the other day who has seven different Louis Saint-Georges Premier Cru, and basically three of them he can sell hand over fist, no trouble at all. Uh, the other four, which are less well-known names, he rather struggles to sell. Do you like those wines just as much, or, or do you think it, it, it may? Oh, no, there is a difference. There, there, uh, there is a difference between them. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I actually pretty much follow, would follow the same. Uh, I don't have the money anymore to go after the Grand Cruise and the Premier Cruise, which I could buy 20, 30 years ago because they were only a little bit more than the, the lesser wines. So I don't buy those anyway. I buy plenty of generic wines. I buy, buy plenty of village wines. And occasionally, if there's a wine I really want that's expensive, I will buy it. But I certainly know that from any given producer, forget talking about the Premier Cruise, there are particular ones I want and others which I probably won't chase after. Yes. We often speak of Burgundy in such you know, grand, romantic terms. 
you know, with the portion of the market who can afford these kind of great wines getting smaller and smaller with, with each vintage, you know, what, what has that meant for the culture and, and philosophy of the region? You know, do you think it still kind of holds that cachet as a, as a thinking person's place? Or is it, you know, the increased premiumization changed the culture a bit? Mostly it hasn't changed the culture. One of the things is that the Burgundian growers have traveled much more whether it's coming to La Pole in New York or San Francisco, whether it's traveling to Hong Kong and, and mainland China or Japan and Taiwan's a lovely market, Singapore and so on. When you travel around, you get to meet cultivated people who are enjoying the wine. What fascinates me actually is that how much the new collectors who I'm meeting in the Asian markets, they want to drink mature wine. There's this mantra at the moment that, uh, frankly, everybody likes to drink wine young, so perhaps we should start making wine so it's ready young. And that might be true of 95% of world wine production, but the top end of Burgundy is not in the 95%, it's in the top 1% or 2%. And I think uh, really must continue to make wine for long-term aging because that's where the real excitement is. When you taste a mature example of a wine that's been really well made, then you can see what the magic is about. So in fact, I don't think the culture has changed too much. Few people have got a little bit too big for their boots. Growers are more sophisticated in the sense that they understand the price at which their wine might be sold elsewhere in the market, the world market. But the fundamentals are still there, the, the family values, the idea that you are in charge of a domain your lifetime and then you pass it on to your children as it was passed on to you all those sorts of things and, and the fact that it's it's a real product that they care about rather than uh, an, an asset to take to market i think that's still true you you mentioned you know burgundians traveling out to the world the first time we met was in otago a couple years back now um, right and they, they talked a lot about a, a big exchange program they did between you know, New Zealand Pinot Noir producers and, and those in Burgundy. What have Burgundians kind of learned from you know, these growing you know, numbers of New World Pinot Noir and Chardonnay producers? And have they brought any of kind of that ethos back? Yes. I mean, I think the expectation was that it would be the, uh, inverted commas, New World uh, producers who would learn from Burgundy. But certainly most of the Burgundians that I talk to are happy to admit that they have learned the other way around. I mean, no less a person than Aubert de Villain, when I asked him what had changed, what, what were the reasons for this being the golden age of Burgundy? That was one of the things he cited, that when Burgundians went abroad and got to meet people making Pinot and Chardonnay in other parts of the world, they realized that they hadn't understood all the secrets and there were things that they needed to do better. Uh, so, and there's just a wonderful feeling of, of energy when you see New Zealanders or young Californians uh, uh, working in Burgundy, or you go out as we were in central Otago, and uh, you can see a little bit of influence from some of the Burgundians there. Indeed, there was uh, François Mier of uh, Domaine de Vogue, where I tasted this morning as it happens. But he, he, we met out there at the same event because he makes wine when he's able to travel in uh, central Otago as well as in Chambon Musigny. So uh, I think it's terrific. And it's not, uh, it's not competition. It's all part of the, you know, the rich tapestry of the potential of these wonderful grapes all around the world. Yeah, that was one of my favorite wines I tasted that, that trip was Mie's uh, collaboration with Prophet's Rock. Um, you could definitely yeah. see the through line back to, to Chambol in, in sort of the philosophy, but the core being Central Otago there. Um, you know, when, when I travel around, you know, I guess the world, but, you know, also even just close to home here in, in Northern California and go out to Sonoma, you know, producers really pride themselves in saying that they, they make their Pinot Noirs 
or, or Chardonnays with a, a Burgundian mindset. What, what does that mean to you? It's one of the phrases that I, I want to leap up and down and strangle the person who's just uh, said it because they say, I, well, it's more in a Burgundian style is the expression because there are as many Burgundian styles as there are different um, uh, producers in Burgundy. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's you know, slightly silly um, uh, uh, way of looking at it, but there are so many different styles, so many different mindsets as well. It is true the opposite way around that occasionally I'm tasting somewhere in Burgundy and I think that's been made in a, we use this expression, new world, which is, is not the best expression, uh, but it, it tastes a little bit more like that. I don't know. Uh, I, I prefer it when Pinot producers anywhere in the world are trying to make their wine in a, as it might be, Santa Barbara style or a Russian River style or a Central Otago style or or whatever works for them, whatever sets them going and to try to bring a comparison back because you also hear them say okay and this is my grand cru they always they think their their ordinary wine is their village and their best wine is their grand cru i then think well okay i can think of a bourgogne rouge that's probably a better wine than either of those but equally there are plenty of times when you might have a, a grand cru from burgundy that's not quite doing what it ought to do and it's much less good than the uh, the regular bottling from new zealand or oregon or california or wherever but, you know, it's it's all people, friends, all trying to do the best job they can with the fruit they've got in the region they've got, with the traditions they've got from their own part of the world. I don't think that you need to keep referring back to Burgundy. Recently, one of one of the major kind of news events of the past few months is the Premier Cru classifications of Puy Fuisay. What are your thoughts on, you know, the importance and significance of this moment? And, you know, are there any other kind of major classification changes afoot in Burgundy? Well, I'm really happy for the guys in Puy Frise. Uh, there are lots of people making very good wines. It's an appellation which I like a lot. Ideally, maybe should have had Premier Cruz all the way along. Uh, anyway, it's happening now, um, has happened. Uh, so the decree has come through. I think there's one more technical hurdle. Somebody in the ministry has got to sign the paperwork, but that's that's technicality. Assuming that does happen, it will be in place for the 2020 vintage, uh, retrospectively. They've worked hard to, to make it happen. There are some special interesting sites, and it's encouraged people to do bottlings by vineyard rather than just blending it all together. They've also put in a couple of interesting extra rules, such as to do with uh, having to leave. If you pull out vineyards, you've got to leave them fallow for a minimum of three years, I think it is, before you can replant, which is very good news. They've also insisted that if you have a Premier Crew under a particular name and there's a bit of the vineyard that's not Premier Crew, there has to be a name change. You can't have the same name of vineyard as part Premier Crew and part uh, village wine, as it were. And that's not been the case in Burgundy in general. So that's a new way forward. Other projects in hand are Marcinet, which doesn't have any Premier Cruz. They've been trying to get this sorted for as long as Puy Frise, but they haven't had as much luck with the administration. I mean, it's almost agreed, but they never seem to be able to get it finally formalized. Saramin might go in the same direction. Um, they're a bit further back, but uh, thinking about it. And a couple of vineyards have been asking for promotion from Premier Cru to Grand Cru, specifically in Rue Saint-Georges, Les Saint-Georges, and uh, Pomar Rougia. But both of those, at the moment, it's, uh, it's a little bit tough going for them. So, I mean, thinking back to our earlier conversation with, you know, changing parameters for, for what makes a, a vineyard great in Burgundy now, 
what kind of went into well, what makes a Premier Cru vineyard in Puy Fusé today in 2020 or, or one in Marcenay or that would merit elevation to Grand Cru for Rougien or, or Les Saint-Georges? Okay. The rules in general are that you've got to be able to prove track record. There will be a soil analysis done which demonstrates whether or not it is a good enough, so a typical soil for uh, the better vineyards of the area. The track record is partly that you can prove that this vineyard has been sold separately from blends for a while and that it gets a better price. For going up to Grand Cru, it's even trickier in the sense that you've got to be able to prove that that vineyard uh, sells significantly more expensively than others. And that's a problem for Les Saint-Georges because uh, the vignerons from Von Romanet, who own holdings in the Premier Cru's, which are up at the Von Romanet end of the Appellation of Nui, i.e. things like Les Boudot and Les Merger, Richemont, they have typically charged rather more money than growers based in Nuit Saint-Georges, who are the ones who own Les Saint-Georges. So that's been a little bit of a, uh, a bit of a hurdle. For Puy Fuisse, they also set some rules that not everybody agreed with. The vineyards had to be under 400 meters altitude, which would be the case for the Cote d'Or, but they didn't take into account the fact that uh, Puy Fuisse is 100 kilometers further south and uh, you can get ripeness uh, higher up. So, you know, there are always going to be discussions, and I don't think bad mistakes have been made, but there are some particular areas that um, might have been focused on differently. You've done a good amount of research recently with geologist Francoise uh, Vanier in Burgundy. I, I think when you think of Burgundy, you think about magic as a sense, you know, it is explaining the, the nuances of terroir oftentimes, but how much of it can be explained by, you know, hard soil analysis and, and science? Great question. Wish we knew the answer. Uh, in fairness, it's Françoise Vanier who's been doing the research, and I've just been chatting to her to uh, discuss it. I mean, she did come up with this idea. I mean, she's fascinating and fascinated herself. Uh, you know, we look at this bit of soil is uh, dates from this period and is uh, Austria accumulata, or accumulation of uh, oyster shells. This bit here is on crinoidal limestone. This bit's on oolite. This bit is what she calls greslite. I can't think how I'd translate that into English. but she says, I don't think you can say that if you have something on, let's call it crinoidal limestone, bits in Chevrolet-Chambertin, bits in Pomar, bits in whatever whatever village, she doesn't think, and I don't think, that you can clearly say that there is a taste equivalency between different vineyards from different appellations which happen to be on the same soil. On the other hand, it does explain things. If you take Bon Mar, for example, the upper part is in the Austria Accuminata, which is the, the oyster shell bit, and white marl mostly. And the lower part is in the calcaire à Entroc in French, which is the crinoidal limestone. And they do behave differently. And it's the upper part which is more in danger of drying out in these hot, dry summers. So you do have to take into account what's going on below the soil when perhaps you decide how you're going to plow your vineyards, you decide if you're going to use a heavy tractor or avoid it, and things like that. So there's relevance, but it's not as simple as being able to say, this soil will give you this flavor. Fascinating. What, what are there other kind of major viticultural trends that you've observed within the last kind of decade in Burgundy? Have, have people changed the way they've grown grapes significantly? Well, we're having a big boost on the organic front because just in the last year or so, lots of the major houses have announced that they are going towards uh, organic certification. 
the Bouchards and the Jadots and so on <clears throat> are clearly heading in that direction. Some have announced it and some are on the verge of. Um, so that's great. A few more people being biodynamic as well. Sustainability is very much uh, part of the discussion. And then there's how you react to current uh, challenges whether they be uh, rootstock that's failing, particular diseases, or just the challenges of global warming. So people are experimenting with different forms of canopy, mostly going, going up and going wider um, with their canopy. Some of them going a long way up, like Charles Lachaud and before him, um, La Lubie's Loire, and several others doing it as well. It's a lively place at the moment with a lot of discussion, and people are not being complacent. You might expect after 25 years of the sort of golden age of Burgundy, after being able to get all these high prices, that's often where complacency sets in and people start to assume that because it's them who's doing it, where they're doing it, it must be good. Thankfully, I'm not seeing that. So moving from the vineyard to the cellar, with white Burgundy, the headline that has dominated you know, a good chunk of the, the 21st century is premature yeah. oxidation. Have producers come to consensus as you know both the cause of premox as well as the cure at this point? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, let me expand on that. There are still multiple theories on causation, and it is multifactorial as well. There isn't just a single uh, cause of this thing. There are various things which you can do to surmount it. I mean, sure, if you change your closures, maybe go to DM or equivalent uh, closure, or not many have gone to the Stelvin screw caps. Uh, and indeed, if you use a wax capsule rather than a foil one, there are various things you can do to prevent it happening, even if you haven't discovered what the real source of it is. People are evolving a little bit better uh, in terms of the practical winemaking, because I think one of the things that was going on was that people were trying to make fine and elegant white burgundy. They were attributing to Chardonnay the same character as Pinot Noir, i.e. being a ballet dancer as opposed to being a, you know American football player. Uh, it's a big muscular grape Chardonnay, and uh, you need to treat it as such. And I think you need to use a little bit of the skins. You need to make sure that either you crush before you press or when you press, you're getting some little bit of a skin effect into your wine. Because after all, it's the skins are so crucial to any red wine making. Why would you want to do without them completely in white? People are being a bit more intelligent in thinking about sulfur. There's more of an understanding that it's possible to allow things to oxidize a bit early on and then precipitate out. And the oxidases, which if you left them in, would give you trouble later on, will no longer be present. So there are lots of things which make it better. And I still also think that uh, uh, quite a lot of oxidation is a short-term thing which goes away after two or three or occasionally more years as long as the cork hasn't let you down that's a slightly controversial viewpoint and i know that many of people who don't hold with it scientists say that if a wine if alcohol oxidizes there's no way back and i'm arguing that it's not the alcohol that's oxidizing it is one compound within the wine some form of phenolic compound that is oxidizing not the whole wine it's much less, less of an issue, but we haven't fully understood it. We aren't completely free of it. So Premox aside, what are kind of the, the general winemaking conversations we're having today? And I, let's start with Chardonnay, just in terms of, you know, badinage and, and solids and, and, and oak and reduction. What kind of developments? So uh, less badinage, probably less new oak. Some people are going back now to the crushing before pressing, uh, which personally I think is a good thing. 
everybody should be left to make the wine in their own way. And, and you have to follow through. It's not just one technique that works and you introduce it when you keep everything else the same. You've got to have a, a coherent run through from the minute you pick your grapes right through to uh, the minute you bottle your wine. Reduction has come into the picture, got a little bit over the top. And the original people who are considered as the poster boys for it, Thierry of Colin Mores and the Jean-Marc Rudos, are actually pulling back a little bit in that direction, not being quite so obviously reductive. But it's always the case when a technique arrives and people think of it as a good thing, then other people say, well, if I do twice as much, that will be a better thing, which of course it isn't. You want to keep all these things in, in, uh, in balance. And I do hope that growers continue to try to make wine which will mature well, because if you have a 25 or 35-year-old white Burgundy, uh, well-made from a decent vineyard, you just have an experience which is transcendentally more interesting than if you drink a Grand Cru at five years old. And what about Pinot Noir? Pinot, a lot of the discussion has been around using the whole clusters or not. So there's more of that now. This is very simplistic, but if you use the whole clusters, you're Acidity levels actually go down, which is a bad thing. Your perception of acidity, or at least freshness in the wine, goes up, which is a good thing. And you probably lose a little bit of the alcoholic degree, which again is a good thing. Certainly, it seems to break up in, in these rich, sunny years. You might risk getting a fruit that seems a little bit too sort of sweetly jammy and uh, using the whole clusters that uh, uh, breaks that up and gives you a more interesting bass relief in the, in, the, in the profile. So that's certainly one thing. Um, some people want to go a long way with it. Some people prefer just to use it in particular vineyards or particular vintages and want to use it as a technique, but don't want it to show in the taste profile. Other people adore the taste profile of it. So uh, lots of discussion going on there. Typically, I suppose the major style of red burgundy making uh, before uh, these hotter uh, times was to give the grapes a good cool, rather than cold, pre-maceration for five days, seven days, occasionally longer. People are slightly querying that now, and I'm beginning to see one or two people who are moving away from that. Uh, that's a technique that gives you these uh, very well-fixed and bright purple colours. You get a slightly lighter colour and style of burgundy if you don't do the pre-maceration, and people are moving towards something which is just a little bit gentler and uh, perhaps more graceful what else again the slight move away from too much new oak maybe that's being overdone um, people are now criticizing a young wine if they can taste the oak that may not be right because it matters when the wine is fully mature if the oak is too prominent but what you want to avoid is the oak being too strong a structural feature so that it's actually drying out the fruit oak tannins are impinging on the quality of the fruit that's a problem. If you just have a, a bit of a vanilla flavor in the wine when it's young, unless you want to drink that wine when it's very young, then I don't think that matters. So you mentioned earlier how as many Burgundy styles really as there are producers. What, what would you say are kind of the major camps today, whether they be, you know, opulent and rich or, or, or lean and mean or, or more natural mindset? What, what do you think are the major kind of stylistic camps of Burgundy? And, and who are some voices that, that you, you appreciate in each of them? Okay, I mean, it's, it's, it's more of a spectrum from the, uh, the really laissez-faire ones. I mean, it was the old saying of uh, René Lafond, Dominique Lafond's father, il faut avoir le courage de ne rien faire. You should have the courage to do nothing. And I might just bring in, because we were talking about New Zealand, 
uh, on a couple of occasions, I've been privileged to be part of a sort of outside uh, expert witness, if you like, the meetings that go on each year when lots of the producers get together and they all bring one of their wines and all the wines are tasted blind. Uh, and then you start analyzing them and you can bring a wine along because you think it's a wonderful wine you're proud to share with people, or you can bring a wine along because you've got a slight technical problem and you actually want a little bit of help. Say, what should I have done and what should I do next time? And it's really, really interesting. And nobody, including the producer whose wine it is, knows whose it is. Though quite often people will put their hand up and say, I think that's mine. Several people came in and said, okay, we had this. And so I deacidified or I acidified or I added this or I did that. And it's all technical responses. And the people whose wines everybody adored, when they were asked what they'd done, they just said, well, it seemed good to me. It was in balance. We left it where it was. You know, when, when it's not quite in such perfect balance, well, that's just what that year is giving you. So I think that's, that's the laissez-faire in a positive way uh, attitude. But you can create the antecedents for that in how you do your viticulture. And sometimes that is very much not laissez-faire um, because it's a new way of looking at it. Like the high canopies, though in fact they're a different form of trellising of uh, Le Roi and of uh, Charles Lachaud. So Charles Lachaud has become the new poster boy and his prices have gone way up as well for the style. He, he's moved to a very, very short vatting time. So 2019s were less than 10 days in total in the vat. No pre-maceration, no sulfur, 100% uh, whole cluster, wines which are not particularly deep in colour, but just ethereal bouquets right from the start and, and, a, and a super sense of balance. I, I think his wines are extraordinary. But it's high risk. It's minute yields. He's getting down to 15 hectolitres a hectare, which is uh, a tonne an acre, less than that. There's a payoff there. Having said which, whenever you change your techniques in the vineyards, you always lose crop for the first few years until the vines uh, get used to it. Lots of people, I didn't talk about this, but lots of people are moving away from the old punching down extraction and moving to pumping over or nothing at all. More, The buzzword is infusion. But a couple of people, um, Louis Jadot continued to punch down. Uh, was it the main Ponceau earlier today? They still punch down. But if you don't do it too aggressively, then you're not introducing too much extraction. And there are people who I think um, uh, are still making pretty smart wines. You've got some people who do go for the later picking. Uh, picking dates, very much a, a topic of conversation. You've got Pierre Damois over in Chevrolet Champetain, who picks sometimes several weeks later than other people and often gets over 15% alcohol. Yet the wines seem balanced because everything he's doing all the way through is geared around the expectation of that as a result. I try, as a, as a sort of wine critic, I try not to impose my tastes on what I'm tasting in the glass. I try and listen to what a producer wants to do and say, have they achieved it successfully? Uh, occasionally, they may have achieved what they want to do, and it's clearly uh, a wrong direction, but, but that's rare. Really, the deal is to say, okay, that's what they want to do. That's worked. And there is this sector of the drinking public who will enjoy that. Whereas here are some other people who I know will not like that wine. So much better to allow for the diversity to flourish. So we've spent a good time talking about the Cote d'Or. Just to touch on the, the bookends briefly, you, you mentioned adding a bit more to Chablis and then tacking on yeah. to the second edition of Inside Burgundy. What, what are some things that have surprised you about both of those regions and in, in kind of to getting to know them a bit more or at least writing about them a bit more? What's kind of the through line between all of all of Burgundy and, and why can you know, consider Beaujolais and Chablis and, and Pouligny-Montrachet all under one family? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's the greater region. And it's true that when I'm up in Chablis, that uh, the producers say, what's happening back in Burgundy? Or I say, I refer to the Côte d'Or as Burgundy. Um, but Chablis is clearly is part of Burgundy, but it's, it's still got its own separate separate identity. And they've been in a really good place, loads of people making very good wine. They are a bit at risk for, from the heat. They've got such a white soil with lots of stones. The hot summer sun is bouncing back up off the stones and risking grilling the undersides of the bunches of grapes. So that's something where they're going to have to reflect for their canopy management, but they'll do that. Beaujolais is a little bit more discussable in terms of whether it's part of Burgundy or a region in its own right. It's a different grape. It's a different soil type. It's a different history, economic history, because Beaujolais typically look to Lyon as where it sells its wine. So I think of it as a separate region that's that's attached to Burgundy, if you like. But Beaujolais got loads of youngsters doing exciting things. The problem for a long time was that the established successful producers of famous crews like Fleury and, and Morgan and Moulinvent were selling their wines way too cheap. They're in all the three-star restaurants and they were selling their wines from the cellar door without tax at five or six euros a bottle, which is just ridiculously low. And it made it incredibly difficult for youngsters to start up. And certainly anybody who started up conventionally was going to struggle. So instead, it's become the center of the, the hip group doing the inverted commas, natural, sulfur-free wines, uh, a little bit out where the buses don't run. And there have been some huge successes in that direction, as well as some wines, which are just that little bit too funky. Uh, I'll also just mention the Maconnet. Um, so clearly is part of Burgundy, just north of the Beaujolais. But I've done some tasting there in the last few months, and there are so many good small producers making some stunning wines at not very much money. Uh, wines which they take the trouble to you know, barrel age for sometimes up to 18 months. And I really admire what's happening there at the moment. So just to wrap up, you know, looking ahead to potentially the third edition of, of Inside Burgundy, what... <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Life sentence. <laughs> what are you keeping an eye on? What, what do you think are, are kind of the major kind of themes ahead for, for Burgundy's evolution? Well, I'm just going to mention it isn't just a question of my books. I also have my uh, subscription website, also called Inside Burgundy. Uh, on which that's where all the tasting notes, I don't put tasting notes in the book, but all my tasting notes appear on that website, plus plenty of other aspects of Burgundian thought that I'm preparing, proposing to develop quite a lot more in the years that come. So where next for, for Burgundy? Obviously, we have to wait and see whether we can tame global warming or not. Global warming goes much further. We're going to have more things to worry about than just uh, where the next glass of wine comes from. But Burgundy could be threatened, it could be challenged, and I should be keeping a lookout on which areas uh, develop really well. And uh, so vineyards up in the Haute Côte, uh, the Bone and Haute Côte de Nuit, for example, uh, some of the sub-regions uh, up around Chablis, I think maybe some of the reds and whites over towards Tonnerre, uh, Epinoy, Tonnerre, they, they could be interesting, and, and so on. So that will be part of the conversation. The organic movement plus biodynamics plus trying to avoid sulfur and copper and things like that. That's all developing and needs to develop more. And there is, uh, there is an intention so to do. So all those things. And maybe on the commercial front, uh, Burgundian producers might look at slightly different routes to market because it's not particularly satisfactory if you make a really good wine that you sell at a uh, 100 euros a bottle or 200 and you see it changing hands two weeks later at 1,000. No one's very comfortable with that. Well, Jasper, thank you so much for, for your time and for your insights. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. 
Thank you, Bryce. Thank you, Guildsom. And, uh, you know, look forward to staying in touch. Yes. Hope, hopefully next time back in Burgundy. Sure. That would be good. Or indeed Central Otago. Hey there, listeners. This is Chris Tanji, Interim Executive Director of Guildsom. And we wanted to add a new component to our podcasts, which are essentially a blind tasting component. For those of you that have an interest in blind tasting or studying for tasting exams, it's always a fun exercise to listen to a tasting note and try to guess what the wine is that way based on your deduction. I found it really helpful exercise in my tasting groups because it makes you listen and makes you deduce without being too influenced by your gut. Now, your gut's great to listen to, uh, and you should absolutely do that, but this is just another way to approach tasting, uh, and it also is a really fun exercise to do with your tasting partners or in this type of format as well. So I've already tasted the wine, and I've written down my notes so that you don't have to listen to me <laughs> sniffing and slurping and all that kind of good stuff. So I'm just going to read it back to you. I'll give you some a little bit of context as to what I think is going on with the winemaking, etc. Uh, and I'm going to do this in the deductive tasting format. And then on the next podcast, we'll release what the wine was. And uh, I'll also give some tidbits about that wine and the region at that stage. And we'll continue this tradition and see how you all like it. All right. So uh, this is a white wine. It's pale straw in color. There's definitely some green secondary colors there, so that's telling me that it's, uh, it's either a youthful wine uh, and or it was made in a more kind of reductive manner. And there's no you know rich color, there's no browning, there's nothing like that. Uh, it has moderate um, viscosity and no gas or flocculation or anything like that. Um, pretty pretty clean and bright. Um, definitely reflects a fair amount of light. On the nose, the wine is sound. Smells delicious. Uh, has primarily tree fruits and citrus citrus fruits. Um, all that are are just ripe. There's definitely a tautness to them on the nose. Um, they're not. They don't smell confected or baked or anything like that. You can tell that they're pretty fresh and vibrant. So I would uh, assign green apple, some brown pear, uh, and definitely some lemon. A little bit more kind of perfumed exotic lemon. We could say Meyer lemon. And there's almost kind of like a saline quality to it as well. So we could say preserved lemon. Also, there's a pretty clear distinction of earth, like a stony earth, petrichor, wet rock type characteristic to it. Not really much in the in the way of wood, not smelling any overt baking spice or vanilla or anything like that. It's uh, it's relatively neutral, but there definitely is evidence of lees. Uh, there's this almost like toasted nut, cheesy type character. That would be the best way to describe it. It's cheese rind, almost like a kind of an aged camembert type rind. And there's also malactic here too. There's definitely some notes of not full-on like diacetyl but there's definitely some characteristics of like creme fraiche more kind of that tart type of dairy and then for others there's uh, a little bit of a kind of white floral characteristic uh, a little bit of hay as well almost like that smell of of like hay in the barn that kind of thing not barn as in brett just that yeah dried grass that kind of thing all right uh, on the palate 
It is uh, sound. It is dry, very dry in fact. It has medium body. And the fruits are confirmed. There's definitely this tart tree fruit character going on. Apple, pear, um, a little bit riper on the palate than I found on the nose. So kind of more of a, a, a riper version of that green apple and a ripe brown pear. That citrus character is still there. And there's a little bit of undercurrent of lime as well. So lemon and lime, but still very kind of on the riper side of, of citrus. That earth note is still there. It is kind of salty, almost briny, stony. Yeah, it's it's definitely has pretty significant earth characteristics, petrichor, whetstone, etc. Uh, wood again, just like the nose, not a lot of wood there at all. There's a a touch of of um, texture, but I think this is more actually from the structure of the wine, um, the pH of the wine, rather than wood or phenolic bitterness or anything like that. Um, and there's no baking spice, anything like that, but there is texture here. Other notes, definitely getting that cheesy character, that Lee's character, and that's mallow that's coming through, but it's still an acid-driven wine. The acid here is is high. Uh, the alcohol is uh, moderate, and there there is no phenolic bitterness to speak of. Other than that, yes, those white flowers are still present in that kind of hay character, but there's just kind of an overall savory element to this wine. It's very thirst quenching. It makes you want to drink another, take another sip and drink another glass. Uh, it's definitely a wine that I would want to drink on the regular and it would disappear quite quickly. That's the note for you. Uh, let you have a guess or two. And on the next podcast, we'll reveal it, give you the the region, the producer, and the vintage, and the quote-unquote markers that I look for in wine from this region, and uh, give you a little more info on the region in general. So best of luck. Thanks again for listening to the Jasper Morris podcast. Uh, super excited to have him featured on, on uh, the series, and we'll catch you next time. Take care.